Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspirechurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Muella. Well, welcome you if you're here for the first time. My name is Philip Muella, and I am um, one of the pastors, and one of the, I just want to call, I don't even call myself a pastor, it's one of the people here that God had called to plant a church in Union City, so I'm so happy uh, to see you guys, and uh, just so happy to be a part of what God is doing here in Union City, here at Inspired Church, and um, man, I have to tell you, we are running towards the end of our small groups, um, so small groups will be finishing off for the summer um, at the uh, end of May, so if you haven't had a chance to just check one out, before we take a summer break in the last couple of weeks, I encourage you to go online and check one out and no one's gonna look at you strange or weird or anything else. You come in and hang out and just experience a small group before we kind of shut them down for the summer. And so I definitely wanna encourage you just before that's over with to maybe check one out. Um, this morning, we're gonna cover the first of the seven I am statements. Uh, so last week, if you were here, uh, was more of an introduction to um, I am, where Jesus says, ego and me. I am. And last week we were in Exodus and we kind of discovered the first time uh, that God used the name Yahweh or I am. And uh, this morning we are going to jump now to John chapter six. Um, so there's seven of these I am sayings in John. And as we go through kind of this entire series, I invite you to take the next several weeks to join us. As we go through this series, I want you to pay attention um, to how John, God bless you, how John structures his gospel. Um, and so there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are called the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. And S-Y-N, sin, just simply mean, it doesn't mean sin, but it means um, together, and optic means to see. And so the synoptic gospels take a lot of the same stories and experiences from the life of Christ and they all view from the kind of a same type of lens to make uh, to be able to share with you the story of Jesus's life where John uh, has a lot of stories in his gospel that that is not similar with the synoptic gospels. And so um, just a couple of things I want you to know, just uh, just to understand what what it makes up a gospel. Um, a gospel is composed of three things. It's what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how people responded to that. So just if you really want to break a gospel down really simple, it's what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how people respond to that. Um, and if you look at the gospel of John, the first half of John's gospel is built around seven signs. Uh, uh, John calls miracles signs. And he only chooses seven. In fact, John says Jesus had done enough miracles that he could fill up multiple books. But he chose to, ch uh, John chose seven for a purpose or for a reason. And so John calls his miracle signs because John chooses a specific seven to point towards something about Jesus, right? Because a sign is cool, but a sign is not the end game. 
A miracle is cool, but that's not the end game. John says the sign points to the greater, to the person. The power is nice, but there's a person behind the power. Are y'all with me? I need y'all to smile a little bit today. We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have it today, okay? Um, come on, Sunday is a great day. I don't know what has happened this week. It doesn't really matter. You've come into the house of the Lord, and there is a word for you this morning. I don't want to chastise you, but I do want to coach you into knowing you're in a great place this morning. You could have been anywhere else this morning, but you came here to church. So work with me. I'm going to smile. You're going to smile. We're going to smile together, and we're going to have a good time. Um, so the first part of John is built around seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus performs that prove his messianic identity. Now, um, here's what I want you to notice today or this morning. John will link a sign with a corresponding discourse. Um, and so John uses a sign and the discourse together to explain a deeper revelation concerning a Jesus. Are you with me? And so a discourse is just simply a dialogue or a discussion. So John will introduce to you a miracle. And then after that miracle, there will be a discussion. And that discussion will actually be commentary to that miracle. Are you with me? Thank God for the Bible writers. I want you to know that we have too many people that kind of live a, um, um, uh, I don't want to say, um, is it mosaic? Is that a, like, a, what do you get a picture when you paint a picture? Is that there's a mosaic? What's the one that's like all over the place? Kind of, it's just like kind of weird and abstract, right? I want you to know that as Christians, there are some people that live in Christianity and they walk into, it's like when you walk up to a painting and you look at it and then the artist comes up to you and says, and you look at the artist like, well, what does that mean? And what does he say? What does that mean to you? And so you look like, well, you know what? I see these colors and I feel like someone is angry. And I feel like and the artist is probably like, yeah, that's what it means. And then another person comes and the person says, well, what does that mean? He goes, well, what does it mean to you? Man, they're happy. I just feel like the colors is happy. And the artist is like, yeah. And, I, and a lot of times when we, and artists do that, they love to pull out what you're feeling and what you're thinking. I want you to know that that's not Christianity. That's not the Bible. It's not like, oh, did you read that scripture? Well, what did you think? What does it mean to you? I know some of us do that sometimes, and I'm okay with the scripture speaking to you, but the only way that the scripture can speak to you, that's the last thing, the first couple of things that you should understand, well, what is it trying to say? What is John trying to say? And so I want you to know when you read your gospel of John now, you just don't take a miracle and say, oh, what does that mean to me? You read through the whole thing because John has something he wants to point out specifically. And if it wasn't for the Bible writers, where would we be? We'd be a bunch of people running all over the place claiming scripture to be this, that, and the other, and we'd interpret it according to our emotions, according to our own whims. And so we need gospel. We need scripture interpretation. We need it. We need it. And so, again, as we go through the scriptures here at Inspire, I want you to know that this, there, it means something. It means something. And so when you look at uh, this morning's message, we are going to break it down the way John broke it down. Amen. So there's going to be two major parts to this morning's message, just so you can track with me. The first part is going to be the miracle or the sign combined with the discourse, right? So there's going to be a miracle, and then there's going to be a conversation. And we're going to marry those two together to figure out who Jesus is. And then the second part, we're going to do the same thing. There's going to be the statement, I am the bread of life. And then there's going to be a discourse or a conversation around that statement. And then we're going to put them together and be able to understand who Jesus is. Are you, are you with me? So John chapter 6, verse 22 and I want you to hold your place there because as you know me, 
I'll start with a specific scripture and then I'll pull away and then we'll jump back in. So please don't lose your space. But I want you to notice something in John 6, 22. It begins with on the next day. You guys see that? On the next day. Now, in order to understand the conversation Jesus is about to have on the next day, you first have to take a look what happened the day before. So when you're reading your Bible and you come to a word that says, therefore, look back a little bit. Do you understand? Whenever you start at a place that says, therefore, don't start there. Because usually it's referring to something that had been said previously, right? And so you got to understand the context. If you're coming to a place where it says the next day, well, maybe you should look back and say, hey, I want to know what happened the day before so I can understand what's happening today. Y'all with me? Yeah. Okay. And so... The, what happened the day before was uh, a sign or a miracle. In fact, it's, um, it's the feeding of the 5,000. Is anybody familiar with that? The multiplication of the bread and the, lo or the loaves and the fish. Anybody familiar with that? Y'all remember that story? Some of you guys, maybe, maybe not. Um, no problem. We'll break it down a little bit for you. So I want you to know a little something about this miracle. Besides the miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels. So besides the resurrection of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. Now, for the sake of time, we won't read through the miracle story, but we're going to discuss some of the highlights of the miracle. That way we can jump back into the next day. Are you all with me? Yeah. So the first highlight that I want to share today really doesn't have anything to do with today's sermon. Um, I just kind of wanted to point out that in verse 5, the disciple Philip's name is mentioned. And it's really like one of the first places that you really see Philip enter into a story. And since my name is Philip, you have no choice but to sit here and just hear me talk about it for a brief <laughs> second. Now, uh, Philip is mentioned in this story, but of course, like most of the disciples, Philip comes off really dense, uh, a little hopeless. He comes off a little sarcastic, um, and ultimately he fails a test. <laughs> but nonetheless... Um, the name made it in scripture, and um, I just wanted to celebrate that just for a quick moment. And, um, and actually, uh, there's a really cool story. I, uh, I was in my second semester of Bible school going into my summer classes. Wasn't quite sure how I was going to have the finances. Um, just wasn't, I wasn't working at the time, and I was living at home, and you guys know all the jokes that come with that, you know, being 28, 29 years old, and God had called me to Bible school and thinking I'm a total loser. And, um, and I, I just remember, man, you know, I'm depending on my parents going to Bible school. I'm 28 years old. People look at me and probably think to themselves, wow, what a, what a waste. I guess I maybe was a millennial a little bit. <laughs> Had to get that in there for a minute, for a moment, but the Lord delivered me. Um, yeah, I know, I know. Millennials, I love you guys, man. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember praying. I remember praying and just kind of like, Lord, like, what, what am I going to do? Uh, to pay for Bible school, like, I really just had not a lot of, not a lot of faith at that moment, and I just kind of, even like, what am I doing with my life? I should be working, there should be a lot of things that are going on, and, um, and um, I had worked for a little bit, I'd been laid off, and so just really kind of in that middle time, I was like, well, does this mean I'm going to go to Bible school full time? And I was wrestling, and uh, I remember opening up the scripture to the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, I remember reading that, <laughs> and uh, and uh, the disciples, basically there was 5,000 people and the disciples were struggling because it was lunchtime and they realized that the, they had to feed the people and they didn't know where they were going to feed all these people with. And it was Philip that was like, you know, like, what are we going to do here? And Jesus looks at Philip and Jesus says to Philip, um, Jesus, well, actually Jesus looks at Philip and says, what are we going to do? And Philip responds, 
Like, you know what, even if, he's like sarcastic. He's like, even if we had 500 denarii, like we still couldn't do it. In other words, like even if, so A, Jesus, we don't have a lot of money, but let's say we did, we still couldn't do it. And then like the next portion of scripture was like, and he, did, and he said this to test Philip, for he already knew what he was gonna do. And I was like, got you, Lord. And I was like, yo, you mentioned my name. Like, I feel like you did this for me. And the Lord's like, that's not how you read the Bible. But yeah, I'll let you, you know, let you, I'll let you. But I took comfort in knowing that it was a faith test for Philip and the disciples. And so um, anyways, I, I didn't want to go off on that, but I did. Um, but just a, a couple of things I want you to know about what happened the day before. Um, 5,000 people were gathered around Jesus. And it's really amazing because that 5,000 was not counting women and children. So we are talking thousands of people gathered during that time. And the disciples were kind of beginning to panic um, when they realized that the crowd was a long ways from home. They weren't going anywhere and they had nothing to feed them with. And then if you continue to read verses 9 through 11, John tells us that Andrew finds a boy, but the boy has five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. But the story goes on to tell us that upon breaking and blessing the meal, that small lunch fit to feed a child miraculously multiplies and feeds over 5,000 people in one sitting. And it wasn't just like, you know, a piece, you know. Uh, you ever been to that birthday party? It's around lunchtime, you're really hungry, you walk in, it's a little Caesar's pizza, but it's cut up in two. And you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I don't think they could afford a lot of food. Some of you probably throw that birthday party. It's all good. We've got some ghetto people in here. Uh, we've done that. And, uh, and you think to yourself, man, I'm really hungry, but I'm not going to eat a lot. Like, you don't want to be that guy with the, no, yo, this tough crowd, man. You never did that before? Am I just sharing my story? And it's like one of those birthday parties. You're starving, but you feel guilty because you can tell the host couldn't afford to buy food. So you only eat. But in this case, it wasn't that kind of party. Like when Jesus multiplied, scripture tells us that everyone ate until they were filled. Now, you ever been to that party? Like I went to one last Sunday, praise God, you know? We dedicated the babies and we got to hang out with the family. And yo, we went to the world buffet and it was like, man, Jesus just multiplied. And multiply here too. Until they were full, until they were filled. And then the Bible mentions this other little detail, right? And the other little detail says this, that not only did they eat till they were full, but they collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. So everybody ate till they were full, and then there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Amen to that party. Come on, Jesus. Someone, I forget what comedian said, Jesus knows how to throw a fish fry. Amen. Now, verses 14 through 15 in that same story, they conclude the story. And they tell us that the people were so overwhelmed by this sign. They were so overwhelmed by this miracle that they began to declare Jesus the prophet who has come. They formed a mob with the intentions of forcing him to be king. In fact, scripture uses the word force. It was like, no, you don't have a choice, Jesus. There's about 10,000 of us, and we are going to lift you up, and we are going to force you into king. Imagine they were probably getting ready to march him into the capital and demand that he'd be king. I often wonder, like, why didn't Jesus just do that? Like, didn't you come to be king? And then I just think to myself, but Jesus did not come to be king in that way. He had to die. He's the king that came to die. A lot of times we want success, right? But we don't want to do it through the death. We want to do it through the other way around. 
Right? A lot of you guys are walking into something and God says, no, you're supposed to die first. Anyway. And I can imagine all the prophets feel, well, this must be the Lord. Everyone wants me to do it. God is crowd. The crowds are yelling. I'm yelling. This is it. Like, no, no, no. Like, Christ knew his mission. You guys with me? But scripture tells us that Jesus flees the scene. Like, he runs away. Like, the mob forms, and they want to, they want to force him to be king, but he flees the scene. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. It's like a paparazzi atmosphere. You ever see that? You ever see like TNZ or any of the paparazzi? Like think of paparazzi on steroids, like surrounding Jesus. And this zealous mob, like enamored, enamored with every move that celebrity Jesus makes. They even want to force him to become king. They're not leaving Jesus alone. They're even spending the night at the scene. Jesus' disciples have to sneak away. And they wake up the next morning and we're told that they're frantically looking. Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? They even go look at the boats and they count the boats. And they say, well, the disciples' boats left, but Jesus' boat is still there. Let's go find him. Are you with me? Now, it's with that backdrop in mind that John tells us on the next day. On the next day, Jesus was found on the other side of the sea. And it's at this day, on this occasion, with that backdrop in mind, where we begin the conversation or the discourse. Are you with me? So now, John chapter 6, let's start at verse 25, and we're going to read through 29. Scripture says this, when they found him... On the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. I love Jesus, right? They, they ask a question and Jesus like totally just denies answering the question and goes in a different direction. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. But for the, food that he, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has, I'm sorry, that you would believe in him whom he has sent. I'm going to read that over as I feel like I chopped through it. It says this again. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then Jesus continues, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him... the for on, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now this conversation starts with the crowd asking Jesus a very practical, natural question. How did you get here? When did you get here? After all, they had been looking for him all day, and they'd even noticed that his boat was still on the other side of the sea. Now, the story that I skipped was, this is the night Jesus decided to walk on the water himself. 
So the reason why his boat was there is because he decided to just take a walk on the water, right? And that's a whole other story. We'll get there one day. Um, but they were asking him, hey, how did you get here? When did you get here? Now, Jesus takes this real natural and real practical question, and he uses it to challenge them to take their natural question and start thinking about him supernaturally. I want you to know there's a theme there. He's saying, you're thinking about me naturally. I need you to start thinking about me supernaturally. You see, in verse 26, Jesus exposes their hearts, telling them, the only reason why you followed me today is because you're attracted to my ability to satisfy your flesh with food. In other words, you've taken a sign that was meant to reveal a deep spiritual truth about me. And you turned it into something shallow and self-serving. Your desire to make me king is not because you know who I am, but because I have the power to feed your bellies. Here they were standing in front of the king himself and misunderstanding the kingdom. Even though the crowd was zealous, there was no real grasp of what the sign was trying to communicate about the identity of Jesus. And instead, they saw a king who could advance their political agenda. Think about it. We go to the polls and we vote for a king or a president or a representative who we think is going to move forward our agendas. And in this case, they saw a king who could make what? What? Food. Thank you. They saw a king who could make food. Jesus continues in verse 27 by cautioning the crowd. He says, don't waste your labor. Don't waste your labor. He says to the crowd that they're in danger of missing the revelation of who he is. And if they're not careful, they'll sweat for food that spoils rather than labor for the kind of food that lasts. The Greek word that's used for last here is the word menin, or food that once it's consumed, gives you eternal life. He says, don't work for food that's going to spoil, but work for the food that when you eat it, it'll bring you eternal life. Now, I want to pause briefly here and ask, what kind of food are we laboring for? Even as God's people, we can find ourselves sweating and laboring and stressing over those things which God has called us to go beyond in faith. Here they want him to make them more bread. Feed my flesh. Feed my belly. Take care of me. And God said, look, I've already told you. Are you guys familiar? Some of us, we've been praying for things that only satisfy the flesh. We were praying for not the spiritual things of God, but we've been praying for very uh, natural things of God, the very natural things to satisfy our flesh. And then we have the audacity to get angry at the Lord when he doesn't answer self-serving prayers. I want to remind you, a couple of weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, where are we going to live, what am I going to do, for the Gentiles seek after those things. You know why he brings up the Gentiles? He says, the people that don't have a king, the people that their king is not God, stresses over those things. He says, but your heavenly father, he knows that you need them. He knows. He knows what you need. 
says, but seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. You know, we, we sometimes allow the material things to push us out of the spiritual things. And before you know it, we forfeit callings, we forfeit opportunities because the anxiety of the material pushed us to move into a direction that God says, well, wait a minute, there's something I wanted to do. Are you with me? It's almost like God is, Jesus is saying like, look, I love you. You're my children, no matter what. And you're going to stress about these things, I get it. But it's almost like God, God's like calling you. Can you grow up? Can you mature just a little bit more? And look, and just because we've been in church for a while does not mean that we've grown up. Sometimes it's, you know, it's the, you know, the new convert that just got saved a month ago that has faith for everything. And the person that's been serving the Lord for 30 years is just full of anxiety. And I'm asking myself, man, there's a, like a maturity switch going on here, right? Sometimes the, the Jesus will remind you, go back to your first love. Go back to the first things. Verses 28 through 29 reveals a misunderstanding regarding the works of God. So Jesus is saying, hey, look, like you, you came to me not because you really knew who I was. You came to me because I could feed your bellies. And like, that's okay. I, I, look, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know me, I'm always challenge you. And I don't want to chastise you for worrying about where you're going to eat. I get that. And that's good. But I just want to remind you that God's calling you to go beyond those worries. And if you are, if you have given your life to him, you're his child. He takes care of you. And there are things that. Maybe you need to focus on that the Lord really wants to do in your life. Sometimes the Lord will allow you to go broke. Sometimes you'll lose your job. Right? I was just thinking the other day, if it wasn't for stress in my life, I don't think I would develop a prayer life consistently. I almost feel like sometimes I've gotten a little stale in my prayer time, or I've skipped some moments, or I've skipped some weeks, and I'm like, man, I know I'm skipping, and all of a sudden something happens in my life, my heart sinks and drops. I'm like, Lord, I need to go and see you. Right? And I thank God because sometimes there are things that are allowed to take place to get us to our knees. I'll tell you one of two things. Here's what tragedy can do. Here's what tragedy or suffering can do. It could either humble you or harden you. You'll either move towards God or move away from him. You'll either move towards the body of Christ or move away from the body of Christ. Because if you look at it, someone suffers a tragedy, someone suffers some, some, uh, someone suffers some suffering, they'll either harden their heart and walk away from the Lord in that. Right? We see that a lot. Or you'll see people who respond in brokenness and humility like, God, I need you. And Jesus says, a humble and contrite heart I won't despise. Right? Amen. He says, I, I, uh, I give grace to the humble, but I resist the proud. Can you imagine God resisting you? He says, I resist the proud. Like, I purposefully put up a wall against the proud. That's kind of scary to me. So, Lord, you know, whatever you need to do. I mean, I don't want to suffer a lot, but, Lord, whatever you need to do. Because here's what's worse than suffering is you resisting me. Then they go on, and Jesus says, hey, don't misunderstand. Don't work hard for the wrong things. Don't labor for the food that spoils. And he reveals a misunderstanding, and they ask him. I don't know if you remember. I read it, but they asked him. They said, um, what are the works? What are these works? Plural. What are the works of God? Tell us, Rabbi. Jesus says, this is the work of God. They go from plural, and Jesus says, this is the work. They say, what are the works of God? And Jesus says, what is the work of God? 
Now, just to give you a little understanding, the Jewish religious system had them thinking in terms of earning God's grace by obeying an overwhelming amount of laws and traditions. Jesus radically deconstructs that idea by defining the works of God that they called it by saying it's not. It's one word. It's the work of God. And you know what that one word is? He says, believe. Believe. What are the works of God? The work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. Believe. Wait, it's got to be harder than that. No, believe. Wait, I got to earn things. No, believe. Wait a minute. I got to jump through hoops. No, believe. I got to obey these laws. I got to do this. I got to do that. No, the work of God is to simply believe in the one whom God has sent. Here's Here's the crazy part. I want you to note this. On the day of judgment, when we stand before God, our eternity will not be determined on how good of a person we were. I hear that all the time. Well, I'm a good person. Well, he was a good person. He must be with the Lord. That's mistaken, sadly. Our eternity will not be determined on how good of a person we were, but rather on one word that Jesus stresses, believe in the one whom the Father has sent. You guys see how the sign and the discourse are kind of colliding there? And so Jesus' miracle with the bread, now he's having a conversation. It's helping bring commentary to the big picture. You see what John's doing? Hopefully this will encourage some of you guys to go through John. It's an amazing book. Let's move to our second portion. Jesus goes from the sign to the discourse. Then he enters into the I am statement. And then he'll give a discourse again. Or they'll have a dialogue again. So if you're at John verse, uh, chapter 6, let's read verse 30 through 35. Verse 30 says this. So they said to him, so this conversation is still going. <laughs> this is funny. They said to him, then what sign do you do? It's like, did you just forget like yesterday? They said to him, what sign do you do? That we may see and believe. So I'm going to pause right there. Just stay there for a second. Jesus says, there's only one work you have to do, and that's believe in the one the Father has what? Sent. And then they respond to Jesus, okay, we want to believe in you, but make us believe in you. Do something. Cool. And this is how they respond to Jesus. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Are you guys ready? Here we go. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am ego and me, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, shall not thirst. Now, let's skip to verse 47 and continue. Go down to verse 47. Jesus continues. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There's the word. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Again, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Now there is so much gold in this discourse. There is so much we can pull out. There's so much in this. But I want to focus on three things because I, you know, that's just how I am. It's always three things, right? Two things or three things. I want to focus on three things. If you're taking notes or you just kind of want to grow in this or know more, the three things are this. The first one is, uh, for any Bible scholars in here, you'll notice that there's like an Exodus motif in this thing. So there's like, if you read through this entire chapter, it feels like John is trying to reconcile what Jesus is doing and with what took place a long time ago in Exodus. We'll talk about that. There's an Exodus motif. Um, then we'll move on to the actual I am statement. I am the bread of life, and we'll kind of, we'll kind of flesh that out. And then we're going to conclude today's sermon. We are going to actually take communion today together. And uh, we are going to conclude with the interesting statement that he says, I give my flesh for the world. So let's go to number one, the Exodus motif. Uh, when I was in uh, Bible school, and Kat probably remembers this, she was in a lot of classes with me. And we were graduating. We had to write kind of a senior thesis. And um, it was just basically it just meant a whole bunch of studying and a lot of work. And... Um, <laughs> And so one of my senior thesis was on the book of um, John, specifically the sixth chapter, and it was on the Exodus motif and the idea that John was patterning the, the, patterning the sixth chapter after the wilderness experience um, with uh, Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus. Um, and so some of us might say, well, there's a weird story in there. There's a weird story, right? And the weird story in there is uh, there's a sign, there's a miracle, and then there's a, there, after the sign and the miracle, Jesus then does another miracle. He walks on water. So it kind of feels like, well, that's kind of out of place, right? But uh, the really interesting thing about that is, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but there are some, there are some um, John in the way that he's writing is parallel what the psalmist is writing when he says that Jesus, well, he said, well it is that Jesus, he says God was walking on the water, walking in the water with the children of Israel as they were going through the Red Sea. And so anyways, don't have a lot of time to go over that, but it's a really interesting story. So let's talk about this Exodus motif that seems to keep coming up. Many Jews during the time of Christ expected that in the final days, God would send a prophet like Moses, who would once again feed them with bread from heaven and would once again lead them into a second exodus. So the Jews during the time of Christ looked back at the Old Testament and they believed that a one like Moses would come again, would feed them with bread again and actually deliver them out of slavery. Let that sit in for a minute. They were expecting physical deliverance from the Roman Empire, which is why they looked past Jesus. They expected one like Moses to come and deliver them from slavery. I'm going to say that again. Deliver them from slavery. Well, what kind of slavery? Not from Roman slavery, but Jesus came to free you from the slavery of your sin. And see, they were looking at Jesus for a natural expectation of Moses, where Jesus was fulfilling. He was greater than Moses. He wasn't one like Moses. He was greater than Moses. He's greater than David. And when you have the Old Testament, the prophets and the kings, they simply point to the greater. They're not lesser. Are you with me? So many Jews were expecting this Moses-like prophet to feed them. And to lead them out, out of bondage. This is why you see them in this dialogue interjecting Moses and the wilderness experience in this conversation. I want you guys to listen 
We're going to go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. You don't have to go there. Verse 4. And I want you to see how this conversation Jesus is having with the Jews sounds just like what took place with Moses in Exodus. Are you ready? So Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Don't let me lose you guys here. Okay, like one of my, one of my and I don't think I'm losing, but I just want to reiterate one of my passions and purposes as a pastor is I want a um, congregation that uh, your general biblical understanding is a little bit higher than normal. Uh, you do understand, like I want you to walk out of here and feel like, man, I have a, I have a greater, so don't, don't, don't let me lose you when we're going into the deep things of the word. Like condition yourself. Any athletes in here? You run a little bit, you condition yourself. You don't just run a mile overnight. You don't just play a basketball tournament or a soccer overnight. You've got to run people. You've got to condition yourself. So don't, don't, be, uh, don't let me lose you here, but condition your mind and your heart to know the word. To be passionate about it. Again, I'm not saying it, but I'm just, this is a passion of mine. So anytime I have a chance to go off topic and just share one of my hearts or missions for this church, I want to. So please, condition yourself. Amen? Amen. Now watch. Exodus 16, 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, so again, Moses, right? Exodus. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and they shall gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now watch, referencing this story as a prerequisite to their belief, the Jews asked Jesus to produce a sign, a sign like Moses did, something that he did for their ancestors. And as right as they felt they were to ask for this, they were sadly blinded to what was standing right in front of them. First, Jesus already multiplied five loaves of bread to feed over 5,000 people just one day before. Secondly, Jesus corrected their bad theology, reminding them, don't get caught up with Moses. Moses was not the source of this bread. He was, the, he was the one in which the bread went through, but he was not the source of this bread. He said, but it was my father that fed you. So when you dialogue with me, come at me right, bro. Yeah. Yeah. They said, well, what are you going to do? Moses fed us with bread. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. Before I answer your ridiculous question, let me just say you got it wrong. Someone ever try to be all smart with you and say something like the whole premise, the argument's off because the very first thing they said was wrong. It's like, wait a minute. Let me just correct one thing, Mr. Know-it-all. Moses didn't feed you. Wow. Are you with me? Moses was not the source of this bread, but it was my father in heaven who sent that bread down. Remember that key point. We'll get back to it. Finally, their biggest mistake. Listen to me. Their biggest mistake was that they were asking for and willing to settle for the inferior. They wanted a sign, but in actuality, the sign had already been given. And the revelation in which the sign was pointing to was standing right in front of their eyes. Still thinking in terms of their flesh, they wanted bread while Jesus was offering himself in salvation. They asked for another miracle that would match the previous experience of their ancestors. And they made the mistake that many churches and many Christians still are making today. Are you ready? Jesus was offering them the greater, but instead they were intent on settling for the lesser. 
I want you to listen to this quote. Quote says this. In fact, God's revelation destroys every picture which man desires to make of it. I got to say that again. In fact, God's revelation destroys every picture which man's desire makes of it. The real test for man's desire for salvation is to believe even when God encounters him in a totally different way than expected. And I'm going to add, or in a totally different way than they wanted. You know, I've been reading this book lately. It's been messing me up, messing a lot of people up. But there's this idea of praying the prayer of indifference. And there's another book I'm reading. It's called um, Discerning or Pursuing the Will of God Together. And it talks about being indifferent. How many times have we went into the prayer closet or you went into a discussion and you already had an outcome that you wanted in mind? And you pray that prayer and you look for things that way, right? You're like, look, the Lord's doing all of this. See all this? Because everything is going according to the way you want to see it. And sometimes being indifferent means, hey, God, before I even pray, here's what I am going to pray. I want nothing but your will. And I will spend two days to purge out all of my wants so that I can sit silently in your presence and hear what you have to tell me. The problem is, is when you step into a situation or a circumstance or an advice or a counsel or a word or a, a scripture or a prayer time, and you've already brought in your desire and your will, you can guarantee that if you haven't crucified your desires and your flesh, that thing's going to creep up and really discern and point your direction. And you're going to walk into a place, step into an area that God did not call you to walk into and step into. The real test for man and his desire for salvation is to believe even when God encounters him in a totally different way than he expected. It's to believe God even when that encounter from God comes at him in a way that he did not expect or did not want. We're going to move on from the Exodus motif and we're going to get into the I am statement. Now it's here in the midst of this deep theological discussion that Jesus decides to boldly declare this. I am the bread of life. Can you believe that? Wait, so what are you going to do? Because uh, Moses fed our people with bread. So what are you going to do? And Jesus says, well, wait a minute. Moses didn't feed the people. God did. Number two is I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall not hunger. Now, let's step out of the story for a, a moment and just admire the Holy Spirit's work through John. John's writing this gospel, and the Holy Spirit is just speaking to him, and he's just writing. John's gospel paints a portrait of the beauty of Jesus so powerfully, and I'm so thankful. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit worked through John to write this gospel? Otherwise, the Muslim apologist last week would probably have a good point. But it's like the Holy Spirit is like, no, we're going to write this gospel. Yeah. Are you with me? For those of you here last week, you understand. I apologize if you didn't. You can go back and look at the podcast. We're updating. Jesus, on purpose, makes a contrast between himself and the bread of Exodus by referring to himself as bread. He says, I am what? Bread. I'm bread. 
And then he corrects their theology, saying the Exodus bread, that didn't come from Moses. But where did it come from? It came from my father, right? Where's my father at? Who is, heaven, who is in heaven. And then Jesus, in correcting them about the bread in Exodus, is simultaneously declaring his own divine origin right in front of them. It's almost as if Jesus is answering the very first question that started this whole thing in verse 25. Rabbi, how did you get here? Where, how did you get here? When did you get here? That's the very first question that launched this whole discourse. Are you with me? Please don't let me lose you. How did you get here? And in response to that natural question, Jesus replies supernaturally in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who what? Comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The Father sent me. I've come from heaven. And just like that, they made the mistake. In the origins of the Exodus bread, they're also making the mistake in the origins of the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus. The source of the miracle is more important than the miracle itself. Wow. Where the miracle came from is more important than the miracle itself. Yeah. Yeah. Now this morning, I want to challenge um, Inspired Church, much like Jesus challenged the Jews don't get caught up in the sign. Don't stop at the miracle, but look through it to the one in whom the sign is pointing towards. You ever pray the prayer, Lord, if you just do this for me, I'll serve you. If you just heal my mom, if you just do this for me, if you my son or my daughter, and then it happens. You know, and there's a lot of people that prayed that prayer and then they don't serve. Don't serve the Lord. I'll go to church every week, I promise. I'll do this. We make all these promises. Man is so full of religion. We make all these promises, and we break them the next week, right? Sleep in. Lauren goes, ah, you know? And all of a sudden, God's just looking at us like, man. But here's what I want you to know is that you don't take the miracle worker. You don't take him, you don't take him for granted because the miracle is done in your life, not even for the miracle itself, but for you to look through it and see the greater in it. And it's him standing there inviting you to go deeper. And may we be a people that always looks for the beauty of Jesus in everything. May we look through the suffering. May we look through the success. May we look through the good times and the low times and the middle times where it's neither good nor bad and it's boring. May we look through those moments and always see the beauty of Jesus. Jesus is challenging the Jews. We need to go beyond our flesh. We need to go beyond our generic need for bread. We need to enter into the awe and the wonder of the living word of God. And we need to remember, are you ready for this? Remember this. The Old Testament manna expired, for they ate of it and are dead. But Jesus gives eternal life, and when you eat of me, you shall not perish. The Old Testament manna was limited in supply, for the children of Israel were instructed to only gather what they needed each day. Yet Jesus is more than enough. And tucked within John's first sign is a revelation that can clearly be seen. The 5,000 people were fed until they were full and there were 12 baskets, what? Left over. The Old Testament manna rotted quickly. I don't know if you remember, but Exodus 16, 19 through 2 says it, 19 through 20 says this. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of this manna until morning. 
However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. Praise the Lord. They kept part of it until morning, but it was what? Full of maggots and it began to smell. You know, God designed that manna. God designed that manna so it wouldn't last more than a day. One day and it would expire. Why do you think he did that? Because he knew, he knew later on down the road that he was going to send the true revelation, the greater. And he said, look, I, can't have, you get, I have it, can't have you get caught up with the inferior. It's only a sign, and a sign will fail you too. It will go away. The emotion and the high of, God, you fed me, and the emotion, God, you healed me. Huh? How many of us, we go, oh, God, you're great. And then six months later, a year later, 10 years later, we're not even serving the Lord. He did this great thing in our lives, and it faded. But the manna faded too. But he said, look, it's not about the sign. We don't worship the sign. The sign doesn't help us. It doesn't honor us. It doesn't lift us up. But we look beyond the sign. And so way in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the manna was good. But God purposefully designed it to expire. Jesus says the true bread from heaven. That Greek word for true right there is alethinon. And it means this. True. Dependable. Real. Genuine. Bread. From heaven. It does not rot. It does not get stale. It does not grow mold. Amen. Purple mold on the bread, the true bread from heaven. It does not rot, it does not stale, it does not grow mold, it does not expire, it's always fresh. It's there's always more than enough. You can invite anyone you want to the party, they can eat till they're filled, and we'll have more left over. It always brings life. John records this on purpose and prophetically. The sign opens the door to the conversation. Allowing Jesus to then make the statement, I am the bread of life. Why settle for the inferior? Why, uh, what's, why satisfy your flesh with a temporal sign when the living word of God has now come? He's standing before you. Two ways that the bread of life manifests in your life. Belief in Jesus. The kind of belief that starts with a true commitment, a true confession. The kind of commitment and the confession that changes the fruit of your walk. I'm not talking about the kind of confession that you walk out of here and you're still the same person. I'm talking about the kind of confession that transforms you. People look at you like, I don't even know who you are, bro. I don't even know if I can hang out with you anymore. You don't say the things that we say. You don't do the things that we do. And you're not even trying, but the transformation is just so deep, so beautiful, and so life-changing, and you're entering into community, and you're going into fellowship. You just can't help but to change. Belief in heaven, number one. I'm a belief in Jesus, number one. Number two, belief in the words of Jesus. Faith comes by what? Hearing the word. Only the word of God will not come back void. Only the word of God will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Literally, this planet that we now live on will expire. He says, but my words will not expire. The word guides us. The word gives us wisdom. The word lifts our burdens. It settles our hearts. It brings peace to our mind. Listen to the words of Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? You've been wondering, how can I be pure? My thoughts are all over the place. I'm, I feel like I'm impure. How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, Psalm this tells us by guarding it according to your word. 
With my whole heart I seek you. Let, let me not wander from your commandments. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not, what? Sin against you. Woo. You got a sin problem? You have a word problem. Get the word in there. The word can literally keep us from sin. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is what? Inspired by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And as you get ready to take communion this morning, and I'll, I'll usher you through this and we'll go through this together. I'm going to bring this down here so that team can get ready. Last thing I want to talk about today is the flesh of Jesus. I want to finish this morning's message off by inviting you to reflect on the words of John 6:51. If you're there, can you go there? We'll read it up here. But if you there, can you follow along? John 6:51. Jesus says this. I'll give you a moment to get there. I can hear pages turning. Amen. Praise God. We have all these cool little technological advances, but uh, amen. Let's get, I love having a nice, solid Bible. You're not a bad Christian for not having one. That's totally okay, but let's, I want to wait for everyone to turn there. Uh, I want to finish with John chapter 6, verse 51. This is what Jesus said. Are you ready? He says this. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now watch. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now the communion doesn't save you. Only your what can. What do you say? One word. Belief. Belief in Jesus. So I want you to know that belief is the partaking of that bread. But then Jesus makes an interesting comment here. And he's, he comments my flesh gives life to the world what does he mean by that you see the flesh of jesus is that very real and tangible human part of himself it was frail it got tired anybody believe that it was the part of him that could suffer and die the phrase for the life of this world means on behalf of or instead of Jesus takes the place of anyone in the world who believes in him. He's what we call our perfect substitutionary atonement. In other words, he appeases the wrath of God by taking your place on the cross. Now I want you to catch this. Here in verse 51. And then we're going to pray. I want you to catch this. Here in verse 51, Jesus refers to his flesh for your life. He's referring to the crucifixion. On the crucifixion, his body was broken. It was battered and it was beat. Are you with me? Yeah. I want you to notice something. Let's go back to John chapter 6 and let's go back to the feeding of the 5,000. Let's go back to that miracle. Here's what I want you to notice about that miracle. Scripture says that a little boy came up. Five loaves, two fish. 
And the Bible says that he multiplied that. But I want you to key in on what the scripture includes, what John includes as he writes. He says, before he multiplied it, it first what? It was broken. It was broken. So Jesus breaks the bread, he blesses the bread, and he feeds the multitudes. You fast forward to here, he says, my flesh is for the world. And this bread is put on the cross, and it was broken. And because it was broken for you, it was multiplied for anybody who would believe. And there's more than enough. There's more than enough. It doesn't run out. Some of you in here think you have to keep asking God into your heart. It doesn't run out. It covers a multitude of sin. There's leftovers for sins that you're going to do and you don't even know. He's got more than enough. In fact, we belittle the sacrifice of Christ when we think that he can't forgive something. Tonight, today, I went, don't be guilty. Ask, believe, said, don't do the works of God. Do the work of God. Believe, receive, come in and commit to the community of Christ. He says, I have more than enough. I've died on the cross. Don't belittle my death. Don't belittle my flesh. And I don't do this to put you down. I do it to encourage you and challenge you. If you're thinking about something or if there's something in your heart and your mind that's been holding you back, and you think, man, I don't know if the Lord can love me. I want you to know there's way more than enough. Yeah. Took on the sins of the world. It was so bad that the father had to turn around and not look at him. He says, Father, Father, why have you what? Forsaken me. I don't feel you in this moment. Because all of our sin was upon him. And when we take communion, there's so many things that go through our hearts and our minds. But this morning, as we enter into communion together... I want us to remember that he gave his body. This was his body, what? Broken for you. The, bro the, the breaking of his body equals the multiplication of his grace for everybody. And don't you dare think there's not enough because there's more than enough. Let's pray. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com.